As we began sort of peeling the onion on the opioid crisis, we really began to see that this supply chain, meaning the manufacturers and distributors and the retail pharmacy folks, that they really had a line of sight that we felt was direct enough and one where accountability came into play. Whether it was a line of sight of suspicious activity, line of sight of orders or impact. And I think that that was one of the most compelling arguments for us to sort of circle around those companies. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the BMO Sustainability Leaders podcast. My name is Catherine McCabe, and I've been a member of the Responsible Investment Team at BMO GAM, based in London, since 2018. I cover the responsible funds, the screening for our specialist ESG strategies, and I also cover public health issues. And I'm delighted today to introduce Meredith Miller. Meredith is the Chief Corporate Governance Officer for the UAW Retiree Medical Benefits Trust, which is the largest non-governmental purchaser of retiree healthcare in the US, covering more than 850,000 members. Meredith, great to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Catherine and BMO for inviting me. Absolutely. So just to give you a bit of context, so BMO GAM actually decided to join the investors for opioid and pharmaceutical accountability back in November 2019. In this podcast, I'll refer to this organisation as the IOPA, as well as the IOPA. They're both the same thing. I myself have found that it's so interesting to join the conversations with the IOPA to really learn more about the impact of the opioid crisis and also to look at how companies can be held accountable for their actions. Just to set the scene a bit, really, because the opioid crisis has had such a devastating impact in the US, but I do recognise that In other countries, although they have been affected, the impact has been more limited. And in the UK, for example, where I'm sitting, I think most people are familiar with the dangers of heroin abuse, for example. Heroin is, in fact, an opioid. But because prescription opioids are prescribed far less frequently and they're far less spoken about than in the US, the risks associated with them are not widely understood. So I just briefly wanted to explain what actually is an opioid. So opioids are a broad group of pain-relieving drugs that act on the nervous system. And there's a difference between opioids and opiates. So we have morphine and codeine as opiates. These are actually naturally occurring chemicals found in the opium plant. 
And then we have semi-synthetic opioids like oxycodone and hydrocodone. These are man-made chemicals derived from naturally occurring opiates. And then we have the synthetic opioids. Though these drugs have been created, um, they're man-made and they mimic the effects of opiates, but they're not actually derived from the opium plant. And examples of synthetic opioids include methadone and fentanyl. So what is the opioid crisis? I just want to set the scene and explain why the IOPA really was formed in the first place. So prescription opioids they can be prescribed for moderate to severe pain after surgery or injury. And also they can be used to treat pain from health conditions like cancer. And they definitely have legitimate medical uses. However, they can be addictive. And due to a combination of different factors, opioid abuse has spiralled in the US since the 1990s, when pharmaceutical companies began to introduce new opioid-based products, very much emphasising their safety, efficacy and low potential for addiction. And in short, the heavy promotion of these products led to widespread use. And so we find ourselves in a situation where more than 130 people in the US die every day after overdosing from opioids and millions abuse prescription pain relievers every single year. Really, the scale of the opioid crisis is extraordinary. It's a real tragedy. And in addition to the public health impacts, including obviously the premature death toll, the economic burden is very significant. And there are myriad costs to society, including healthcare costs, criminal justice costs, education costs, the list goes on and on. And so the Investors for Opioid and Pharmaceutical Accountability was really created to try to address the underlying issues. So which companies are actually responsible for the opioid crisis? And how can we try to address those issues through looking at their governance practices? So without further ado, Meredith, I think it would be very helpful to hear in your own words why the IOPA, as I'll refer to the investor group from now onwards as, was started in the first place. And, and what's your personal view on this crisis as somebody based in the US with more of a first-hand view. Oh, thank you, Catherine. That was a really great comprehensive roundup on the problems that we face with the opioid crisis and the evolution of the crisis. And I think it was important that you said that there's an appropriate balance and use of opioids as a painkiller, and we recognize that. And we also recognize the importance of all of the drug companies in the supply chain for opioids in terms of their role for our healthcare markets. But the investors joined together, actually, sort of, it was almost like a combustion. It was a meeting of several groups at the same time in 2017. We had faith-based groups coming together with mainstream investors. It was a pretty unusual joining, all out of the keen concern about the impact that the opioid crisis had on the economy, and not just on the companies in which we invested in, of course, in the impacts on shareholder value. But as you said, the way that the opioid crisis was affecting the healthcare markets in general, the sort of our individuals in 
participants in our plans and in our communities. And when we look back at what we were looking at in 2017, you can almost see it as a systemic risk. It became the kind of problem that many people likened to the tobacco industry and the, and the recognition of the addiction of tobacco. And so investors really began to take a look at the supply chain companies that one would consider within the opioid business and what were the risks in those supply chain. And when we speak about opioid supply chain companies, we're really referring to the manufacturers, the distributors, and the retail pharmacies. So I would say that it really came together out of the recognition of the keen business risks, economic risks, and health risks that all came together at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, one thing I find so valuable about joining the IOPIS meetings is that there are lots of different viewpoints because the members are so diverse. I've been really struck by the fact you have faith-based, sustainability, public and labour funds and different perspectives obviously add to the conversation. And I think what's extraordinary about the group is really its membership growth has been so rapid, very much drawing attention really to the seriousness of the problem. Why do you think that this issue has captured so many investors since the the founding of the IOPA in 2017? Well, I think you hit it right on the head. We have such a diverse membership, and some of the members in the IOPA started their work right before 2017 when we came together. You know, when we look back in 2017, we had 30 members that represented $1.3 trillion in assets under management. And as of July 2020, the coalition has grown to 67 members with over $4 trillion in assets under management. And I think that this cross-section of faith-based and labor and public sector funds. We have comptrollers and treasurers and and sustainable investors and health funds like, like the UAW Trust. You know, we came together to both meet the needs that we felt, you know, of the plan participants and as well as our investments. But in large part, we had some catalysts within the group, within this diverse membership. At the time in 2017, the Teamsters had, and the state treasurers, also in consultation with Siegel Marco advisors, had started engaging early on with the opioid distributors, and they had some success with McKesson in particular. They were able to get one of the first board risk assessment reports. And then that happened sort of at this very same time, there was this significant call to action from the members of the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility, which we always refer to as ICCR. That's a broad-based investor group, investor-focused, faith-based, and and sustainability fund coalition. And ICCR has had probably over two decades, if not three decades, of successful engagements with pharmaceutical companies on a whole range of governance issues, corporate governance issues. And so this this sort of catalyst of success and, and, and identification sort of came together. And while we started, and just to explain the, the pharmaceutical accountability piece uh, in the I, what we called the IOA in 2017 was the Investors for Opioid Accountability 
sustainability. One of the reasons we also grew was because in 2019, we expanded the focus of the coalition to include companies that were not opioid companies, but actually came under similar allegations or claims. And I'm I'm talking about regulatory and and legal claims for anti-competitive practices, which may include price collusion or off-label promotions or or various other kinds of market practices, which may, for example, keep biosimilars or uh, generics off the market. So in some ways, the IOPA kind of drew together and began coalescing around what were the governance, compliance, and compensation issues that we could begin to examine at the board level and board oversight and really begin to take a look at the kinds of corporate governance reforms for us to feel confident that we're in place so that this opioid crisis wouldn't happen again, but also um, that we were able to take a look back during the years where it was really beginning to grow and become a problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what's really added weight to the dialogue with companies is the fact that obviously now the IOPA represents over 4 trillion in AUM. And that means obviously if we have dialogue with companies via letters or via meetings, via calls, for example, that really adds weight to the conversation and makes sure that companies pay attention Obviously, it has to be said, not all of the companies involved in the opioid supply chain are household names, but they are often very large companies, which have historically been, I would say, a bit more resistant to engagement. And so it's really critical that different investors can come together and act effectively as one group. And just to touch on what you said earlier about engagement with manufacturers, distributors and retail pharmacies, obviously there are lots of different pieces in the puzzle when it comes to trying to address the underlying issues causing the opioid crisis. And I think it would be helpful if you could explain why it's so important to engage companies across the opioid supply chain. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really important point. First, I want to hit on something that you said, which was sort of which groups make up the opioid supply chain, the manufacturers, the distributors, and the retail pharmacies. And some folks in your audience may be saying, well, why didn't they go after providers or why aren't they interested in engaging with other entities that may be involved in opioid prescriptions, physicians, others? And First, it's probably sort of a sensible approach that we invest in these companies. So these, first of all, we need to be equity holders or, or bondholders in these companies. But also, as we began sort of peeling the onion on the opioid crisis, we really began to see that this supply chain, meaning the manufacturers and distributors and the retail pharmacy folks, that they really had a line of sight that we felt was direct enough and one where accountability came into play. Whether it was a line of sight of suspicious activity, line of sight of orders or impact. And I think that that was one of the most compelling arguments for us to sort of circle around those companies. One of the other reasons why we picked those three uh, sort of subgroups within the supply chain is that they presented distinctly different but complementary business risks. So when we look at the manufacturers, there were um, allegations, and I'm, and you know, I, I guess I should have said this at the start that 
the companies you and I are talking about and the topic that we're discussing today is that these opioid companies are facing massive litigation. There are over 10,000 cases that have been filed by counties and cities and states across the United States. And some of them are have been consolidated in multi-district litigation, and some of them are being pursued by the attorney generals. And there's other related litigation. We just saw other litigation coming out from regulatory agencies as well. So when we looked at what was it that was opposing the source of these claims and allegations, there were claims that manufacturers had downplayed the highly addictive role that the opioids could play, and they may have oversold the ability of the opioids in terms of dealing with pain, or they may have promoted you know, off-label promotion of the use of the drugs. And so the manufacturers had their own set of risks that went along with their production in the supply chain. The distributors faced allegations of failure to report suspicious orders to the DEA, and that is the Drug Enforcement Agency in the United States. And that is a key compliance obligation and raising red flags. Those were the claims that suspicious orders were not, you know, run up the flagpole in a timely fashion. We had a number of reports, and you could look at the distribution in Pennsylvania or in West Virginia and Ohio. And there are stark numbers and incredible reporting in the Washington Post about the number of opioids that were distributed in in towns where they way, way and tripled the number of citizens that could have been there. And so there was concern that there were drop-offs at places that were, you know, using them, obviously, in ways that, that were not being able to track and may not meet compliance standards. The concern also is that in the United States, Amerisource, the three distributors, Amerisource, Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson, control over 85% of the market. So it's not as if we have this sort of inability to, to look at ARC, which is the data that the DEA uses in order to try to assess distribution patterns. At least this is what we read from the legal cases. Now, the retail pharmacies face similar claims uh, for their role. Some of the legal allegations describe them as both a distributor and a dispenser of opioids, coming both under the DEA rules as well as being sort of a dispenser themselves to their own immediate customers. So all three groups have also come under legislative scrutiny as well in terms of oversight hearings. So this is really an important sort of way in which they could potentially be seen as working together and having different types of compliance obligations. Yes, oh, absolutely. That makes sense. And they all have contributed in different ways to the crisis. And I just wanted to dig in really to the business risks aspect of the opioid crisis. Obviously, the public health impact of opioids have been much discussed, much publicised. But in terms of the business risks, as you said, Meredith, the legal ramifications of the opioid crisis have been absolutely extraordinary. And so many companies have faced multi-million dollar fines. And what this really boils down to, I think, is difficulties with business conduct, particularly when it comes to the oversight of opioid manufacturing, opioid distribution, opioid retailing. 
And because opioids proved to be so profitable, it seems that in certain cases, companies were willing to turn a blind eye to really what was going on behind the scenes. And as you mentioned, sometimes one dispensary would be giving out a huge number of opioids, um, comparatively speaking, but that was not picked up. And nobody thought, you know, to really crack down on cases. So thinking about how we can try to really address the issues on the ground, why is corporate governance and and the oversight of uh, the underlying issues so fundamental to really tackling the underlying issues? Well, that's a great question. I think, you know, in terms of being an institutional investor, our best leverage, and we rely on the directors to represent our interests along with, of course, the interests of the company. We're sort of one in the same. And so, When we were thinking about strategies and corporate governance and opioids and the opioid crisis, we really were looking to the directors uh, for, for the level of oversight that they had performed in terms of the practices and also how effective that oversight was. So we kind of looked at it in three tranches. We looked at the board level governance, what committees uh, were responsible, not only what committees were responsible, but what information was coming up to the board, who was providing that information, and uh, and then how, how was the board going to continue going forward in terms of monitoring the controls and also providing ample opportunity for employees through whistleblower and other protections to be able to voice concerns. The other area that we looked at was compliance. And in this situation, again, we were very interested in understanding uh, what kind of controls were in place, what kind of reporting was coming up through the management system, whether it was decentralized or centralized, what kind of, I guess, also sort of disincentives were in place for compliance violations. And then again, at the board level, what committees were responsible for compliance and regulatory oversight. And then finally, we looked at compensation. And you know from your own experience and expertise, expertise that investors often see, you know, compensation as one of the clearest and best windows into the integrity of corporate board decisions. And in this case, we were really trying to understand how executives and people with risk responsibility and risk decision-making were being compensated. And then in the situation of opioids, it's more than just sort of executive level and management level compensation. It's really looking through the entire organization down to the sales and marketing workforce and what kind of incentives are in place that may have put undue pressure or may have created perverse incentives in terms of marketing of opioids. And so compensation, both in terms of the way that pay is structured, but also in ways in which there's this nexus between compliance and compensation so that they're built in tools that can encourage the highest ethical standard. And I can go into that in more detail, but the, you know the, that really was part of the strategy to try to get at how we could both understand the board's oversight and effective management of these three areas, but at the same time, engage with the boards to try to bring to fore best practices that we had learned from our own experiences with other industries to bring them to the table and to say, 
that we thought implementing some of them would make the board and the system not only more accountable, but also uh, transparent as we go through these next phase. You know, we're sort of facing a different phase now in the opioid litigation and with the opioid companies. We're really heading into the near-term settlement phase, and that presents another set of governance issues, of which I'm happy to talk about as well. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, there's so much that could be covered on corporate governance. And I think just to pick up on what you said, I think it's a very relevant point that good corporate governance practices, when it comes to trying to address opioid related risks, are very much applicable when it comes to looking at other business misconduct issues. And absolutely, when it comes to good compensation practices, for example, to try to discourage misconduct, we can apply the same principles really across the board. And that's been a very positive avenue really to try and obviously spread best practices and try to see positive results on a cross-industry basis. And just to pick up on reporting, I mean, obviously, in recent years, we've seen such a huge rise in ESG reporting, um, absolutely across all issues, across all industries. And when it comes to the companies involved in with exposure to opioids, we've seen that as well. And one key angle which the IOPA has been focusing on is the publication of a board risk report. And it would be helpful, Meredith, if you could just explain what that is and what you see as the benefits to that report. Sure. You know, we've been very, very fortunate. Should have said this at the beginning, but the IOPA is co-led by Mercy Investments. So it's uh, jointly led by the UAW Trust and Mercy. And Donna Meyer is my my peer, <laughs> my co-leader. <laughs> Donna has worked mightily with the Illinois State Treasurer's Office uh, together in sort of creating this board risk report ask and then evaluating the reports once they come in. So the goal of the board risk report was, you know, here you have an incident and you're trying to encourage a board risk assessment to look back at the compensation compliance and and governance practices, we asked boards to go back to 2002. We looked at it, you know, we, we customized it for each company based on the timing, but for the most part, we were asking companies, the boards to go back in time and look at how any of those three strategies may and governance provisions may have affected the allegations that they're under right now. And then what were they going to do to change going forward? Now, it was an assessment of not only that, but also political lobbying and contributions for certain trade associations and professional organizations that may have worked to undermine DEA legislation. So that's really where some of the political expenditure piece fit in. And the board risk report on top of sort of asking for the look back and look forward was also one where there are two more sort of important points about it. One was we asked for each of the companies to have a preamble at the beginning where they would explain what their markets were and what they actually made. There were a number of companies that had discontinued, like Endo discontinued Opana, and some companies had also either sold off or, or merged. But then we were trying to trace, as you said in your 
introduction, we were also pressing companies to talk about whether they had global sales and whether they were continuing to sell under a different name or with uh, a partnership, business partnership in another country, so that we could track uh, because of the increased scrutiny in the United States by the regulatory agencies and, and the courts. And so part of it was really understanding kind of the market exposure and the sales and distribution of opioids. And then the second was really understanding the board governance structure, where it was lodged, where it had been, and then really getting into a little bit more on the compliance and the reporting up structure and the compensation where we were at the same time. And I know we'll talk about this in a bit, but we, we had a number of resolutions pending during these board risk reports that questioned some of and sort of proposed some compensation strategies that we were hoping companies could take, including clawbacks and other strategies that would really deter misconduct down the line. Now, out of the board risk reports, there were a number of interesting developments. I mean, first, we had asked that these reports not be buried in some subpart of a website. <laughs> we were really interested in them also not being tucked into as much as we love and honor sustainability reports. We didn't, we really wanted this to be a board product. So we wanted it to be on the website under the corporate governance section and to really have the um, voice of the board, the, 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 that this was really a board product. And many of the companies, if not all of the 14 companies where we have reports, put them on their website that could be visible. The reason I mentioned the Illinois State Treasurer, who is a member of the IOPA, is that they took it upon themselves to create kind of a matrix and an evaluation of the report. And so with every report that came out, we met with the company and made recommended changes. And part of the changes had to do oftentimes with a clarification on the market coverage, but also metrics, you know, how were they measuring, you know, what were the measures of success for the company in terms of meeting their goals and opioid distribution supply, and how were they changing things going forward? The first report, board risk report that came out, which is really one of the most comprehensive reports is McKesson, actually. They did a, a walk back, and then they have something like 11 to 13 recommended changes, including reports reporting structures from management up to the board. You know, I would commend this report to readers who are interested or who have other business crises or certain controversies on this scale that they're looking at how, how to do a board risk report. The other thing that came out of it that we, you know, we had very good engagements with many of the chair of the boards of several companies. We were very, very pleased with their ability to get directly to the board on this. Um, in the case of Cardinal, we did meet with the chair, I believe once or twice, and Cardinal and Assertio created uh, special committees of the board on opioid risks. And on the Cardinal website, you can see actually the mandate of the committee, the, the, the issues that they're taking up, and as well, they have embedded in that part of the website previous requests to the board that were outside of the IOPA purview. This is pre-IOPA, uh, where there were individuals who had asked the board to investigate DEA and other opioid-related 
conduct, and they have full reports that w- wouldn't have come to light had we not had that good engagement with them, as well as their willingness to be transparent. So the board risk reports are live documents. They're living documents, I should say, not live documents. And we continue, uh, Donna Meyer in particular, continues to work with companies and making sure that they're updated and that as the companies even change in whether they merge or, or change in any way that we're able to, like Allergan uh, being bought or Mylan turning into Viatris, really working to make sure that these board reports continue. Absolutely. Really interesting. Um, thanks, Meredith. Obviously, these board risk reports are very comprehensive and I think the transparency that they offer really helps to shed light on how companies are trying to address the risks associated with opioids. And I think it's really shocking how little transparency there was really until relatively recently. And as you said, it was quite difficult to get a handle on which companies were actually exposed to opioids and how. And there was so little clarity on how boards were trying to oversee the risks associated with them. But I think we are in 2021 in a better space, but obviously we've got to see these reports continue to be published and for companies to continue to raise the bar. In terms of Obviously, we haven't seen positive progress on all fronts. And one way we can try to make sure that we do see positive change if companies are not necessarily receptive to suggestions is to use shareholder resolutions. And I think it's amazing what the IOPA has been able to achieve um, via different shareholder resolutions which have been put forward. And It would be interesting to hear from you which positive outcomes really stand out in your mind. Oh, great. Yes, I I should say that part of the strategy of the IOPA was to try to get out of the block quickly in 2017. We did a scan of each of, we had about maybe 20 companies as focus companies, and we looked at a number of governance reforms that we thought were directly related to these compliance issues and transparency. And so we did, you know, many of the companies, as I mentioned, were really willing to engage. And of course, we were a large coalition as well. But I I do want to commend the companies for for their level of engagement. And in the US, it's it's not uncommon to file in order to bring companies to the table. It's just our our way of of engagement. And and I would like to talk about one of the pieces of IOPA that did not involve filing, which was our our, uh, incentive deferral working group. But we did at the very beginning sort of conduct an analysis on the companies. And so we filed simultaneously several different issues of, of governance across the board. And the ones that really rose to the top was, of course, the board risk report was one of the key resolutions, which is why we have 14 of those. The other that we've been working on, and I believe, Catherine, this year, will be the watershed year, the the sort of turning year for independent share. 
We were able to get independent shares through a lot of the great work of the Teamsters at Cardinal and McKesson. But there were a number of companies, including the non-opioid companies that I I mentioned were in our world that where we are trying to work on that resolution. We got in the very high 40s uh, last year, and I think that that will be, we, we are filing at six companies this year, and I really think that we may be able to to sort of lead with the principle that we really, especially for companies that are under significant legal allegations, that it's important for us to have a separate chair and CEO. The other areas that we worked on that I think were really incredible sort of sector-wide application that did somewhat predate the IOA was in the area of, of misconduct clawbacks. And the UAW Trust and several of the pharmas that are participated, that were part of our IOPA engagement, had worked in 2012 to develop a framework for a misconduct clawback. And, and really what that is, is unlike the Dodd-Frank in the United States clawback, which really kicks in only if there's a financial error in financial reporting so that executives need their pay clawback because it would be uh, sort of paid out (laughs) due to ill-gotten gains. In this case, we were really looking at ways in which companies could keep control over payouts uh, that, that came up through a violation of the company's code of conduct. And so that could include a whole range of activities. But most importantly, we wanted to include not only folks who may directly violate a law or regulation or the code of conduct, but also individuals who are responsible as a supervisor for overseeing such risks, whether they knew or or did not know. And so part of what the IOPA did was first sort of run through and make sure that we had clawbacks in place, misconduct clawbacks in place, and then go through and also ask for disclosure of the use of the clawback uh, under certain circumstances. And All of this is with deference to the comp committee. The whole framework of clawbacks, our proposals never triggered a clawback. They basically created some criteria and made clear the authorization of the comp committee to have the ability to claw back. We really saw that as such an important best practice. It really creates an important tone of the top, sets the highest ethical standard, and also creates, you know, sort of clear tangible consequences to uh, violations in in the workplace. And so that is one that we got 18 uh, misconduct clawbacks in place, and we're very, very pleased with that. We also um, have been doing work on um, incentive deferrals as sort of the corollary to that, and in finding out that, like, as happy as we were that many of the clawbacks were implemented that companies have not been using the clawbacks as frequently or in a decisive fashion when there are clearly uh, significant legal charges and weakened corporate governance practices. And finally, there was, I think, some of the the work that we're also very pleased about was some of the beginning work on really drawing attention to how companies, when they calculate the executive and the CEO pay, that they actually back out and exclude the legal costs and settlement, projected settlement costs, so that they're insulated from that during the year that they're receiving an award. And investors have to absorb that, as do um, other stakeholders in the system. And so there has been a a really important elevation of the awareness that we all have to share in the accountability here as investors in the company and as leaders in the company. 
yes, I agree. I think accountability is absolutely key and you've really shed light on so many different aspects of how misconduct can be tackled through different remuneration strategies. So yes, Meredith, you touched on the fact that obviously we've got lots of progress um, to be made really when it comes to different remuneration strategies to try to discourage poor practices. But also you brought up the point about the separate CEO chairman. Now, this is something which is already fairly common in Europe, but less so, but increasingly so in the United States. And we're really seeing increased support for proposals asking for a separate uh, CEO slash chair. And we expect to see, you know, further support this year. Meredith, I know obviously the IOPA has so many different work streams going on and clearly COVID-19 has not yet been resolved. And against this backdrop, which aspects of the IOPA's work are you most looking forward to um, in the coming months? Well, thank you. Yes, we have so much on our on our plate. There's a few work streams I'd, I'd like to point out. One is I did mention already, which was possibly the tipping over and, and greater expansion of the independent chair as we go into 2021. But the other is not a resolution-focused initiative, but one that uh, we are moving forward with a number of companies that have distribution facilities or frontal-facing public consumer-facing workers. And that is an initiative that is calling on the Compensation Committee and the Audit Committee to help us better understand how incentives may be in place or internal auditing may help us understand the uh, application of OSHA, which are health and safety guidelines here in the United States during COVID in the workplace. So to understand really how health and safety for these pharmaceutical workers and distribution and, and, and what kind of financial incentives may in place that protect against undue pressure for increased profitability and productivity that may jeopardize their health and safety. The other two other initiatives, one is that, as I mentioned, this is kind of a a culminating year for the opioid litigation. And here in this year, we see very large charges uh, coming, being booked in the financials for the companies. We've seen Amerisource Bergen is at $6 billion, J&J is above $6 billion. These are the charges that are being set aside in expectation of a settlement with all of those counties and cities and AGs that I mentioned around litigation costs. And so one of the, uh, and we see see it at Amerisource Bergen, one of the things that the IOPA is doing for the 2021 season is really looking at whether the companies continue to insulate the executives in calculating their pay from these costs, especially executives in very high position CEO and NEOs named executive officers, where uh, they may have been uh, in key appointments and decisions during the run-up of the, those opioid years that we talked about earlier. And so we're looking at the exclusion of those costs, whether there's above target bonus or long-term incentive pay awards, and at the same time, these very, very heavy charges, you know, in, in many cases, 
cases, they wipe out five to 10 years of profit for the company. So we are, a number of the treasurers have been leading of the IOPA, have been leading vote no's, uh, and vote no's in the, in the U.S., similar to, to, to the U.K., a vote no would be a vote no against the pay package. We have a, um, a precatory or what's called a voluntary say on pay annual, mostly annual vote. So that I think is going to be very important coming up. And then the third stream that I, I just wanted to say I'm excited about is the impending announcement of uh, this past year, we have had a collaborative working group with 14 uh, pharmaceutical companies where we've been able to work on looking at how we can facilitate the use of the clawback through basically delaying the award of, of bonuses or of their long-term incentive pay, delay in a bit, just a portion a bit, in order to keep control over those assets so that if there's late arriving information about these opioid legal cases, that the comp committee it can use its discretion in making appropriate adjustments, maybe even downward reductions. We're very, very pleased with the outcome. We were able to develop some principles with the pharmaceutical companies. Many of them are still working through their consideration of the work that we did collaboratively, but it was a great alternative to the shareholder filing strategy in the United States. And we were able to withdraw at all the companies during the year and say that, you know, if they were in the working group, that this would come uh, to fore. Uh, we were very fortunate to have Charles Elson from the University of Delaware uh, Corporate Governance Center there and, um, and Doug Chaw, the former uh, Associate General for Johnson & Johnson, who's now the CEO of Soundboard. They were our facilitators of this group. So it was very structured and a wonderful collaborative experience. And I really look forward to working with the companies on, a, on a, either this initiative or a similar initiative in the future. Yes, I mean, there has been so much constructive progress, as you say. I mean, obviously, the different cases of litigation tend to attract a lot of headlines. And rightly so, this topic of the opioid crisis uh, is very emotional for a lot of people, given its tragic toll. But I think what we've tried to do during this podcast is to really convey the power of engagement, the power of dialogue with companies, and also the real progress which has been made. But obviously, there's still a lot to do. And definitely 2021 will be a busy year for the IOPA. But definitely lots of bright spots on the horizon as we try to resolve this crisis together throughout the opioid supply chain. And just to conclude, obviously, COVID-19 is very much a crisis in the headlines, but the opioid crisis has not gone anywhere. And we have to continue to hold companies accountable for their actions and, and work together to implement best practices, which are absolutely applicable across sectors in, in many cases. So I'm really looking forward to continuing to be involved in the meetings and learning more. It's such an interesting topic from all sorts of different angles. So thank you very much indeed, Meredith, for your time today. I very much appreciate your insights. Thank you, Catherine. And I want to thank BMO for giving me this opportunity. I want to thank you for being in the coalition and for your leadership on this issue. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. 
To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.